You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Dear Governor is a production of iHeartMedia and 3 Much Media. Dear Governor Newsom. Dear Mr. Governor Newsom. This is an open letter to Governor Gavin Newsom. Dear Governor Newsom. Jarvis Master's book, That Bird Has My Wings, an autobiography of an innocent man on death row, is to know that his opportunity for success in living the American dream was hijacked long before he so much as inhaled his first breath. And tragically, his story is anything but an isolated experience. There's a disturbing phenomenon in this country in which a population of babies, more specifically babies of color, and even more specifically impoverished baby boys of color, are pushed out of the womb onto a direct pathway to prison. Marion Wright Edelman, President Emerita and founder of the Children's Defense Fund, who identified this trend and coined the phrase cradle-to-prison pipeline, writes, The most dangerous place for a child to try to grow up in America is at the intersection of race and poverty. Folks, you know, we're losing it and we're going backwards in just one or two generations here. And this, in my belief, is that this is the worst crisis faced by the black community since slavery and that incarceration is becoming the new American apartheid. We're feeding poor children by the hundreds of thousands each year into this pipeline to prison and to dead in lives um, and um, at younger and younger ages. Um, and we've got to stay stopped because it's going to undo the last 50 years of progress. Jarvis grew up on the corner of race and poverty, but his particular intersection was so perilous, it spit him right past the cradle-to-prison pipeline, straight to the cradle-to-death-row pipeline. We've enlisted Enlil McRae, a personal mentee of Jarvis and a member of the Truth Workers Theater Company, to help us tell Jarvis's story in his own words, From That Bird Has My Wings. It was the late 60s when my mother, Cynthia, and my stepfather, Otis, were among the biggest heroin users and dealers in Long Beach, California. From the outside, the house didn't look like a dope house. 
My parents had lots of money from being in the drug underworld, so they could afford a front house that drew no suspicion or complaints from the neighbors. The house was a place where my parents' clientele and whoever they chose to bring with them could always, no matter the time of day, walk right in and shoot their dope indoors off the streets. Many of their customers would nod themselves to sleep right there on the living room or bathroom floor and stay for hours and hours. They shot dope all over the house, you know. Heroin was a big thing. Jarvis Masters. Everyone had those little things wrapped around their arms and had a little uh, shaving kit. They shot dope in the kitchen. They shot dope in the living room. They shot dope in the restroom. They, they argued about who was... Who, who had more dope than the other, and dope was, like, all over the place, you know. To avoid the prostitutes and the ne'er-do-wells drifting in and out of their home, Jarvis, his older sister Charlene, his younger sisters Bertie and Carlette and Baby Dean found comfort in the safety of the attic, their own private treehouse. We loved that attic. That attic was somewhere where we just loved staying at. You know, when we when we thought there was going to be violence downstairs, we'd go into that attic. When we felt like, you know, we were too hungry to uh, move around, we will go up into that attic. We would, I mean, uh, it was something that we found that we thought no one in that house would walk in that house or leave that house would know that it exists. It was a good place for us to be when we thought that there was something going down in that house that we didn't want to be around. So, yeah, we, we, we were living in that attic. That attic was a really, really good place for us. It was here that they could sleep soundly like babies, despite their empty stomachs, the lack of electricity, and their filthy, ragged clothes. An old white woman lived in the house behind us. Every morning she would put food out for us. She somehow knew that we were being left to starve in our own house. We counted on her food. Sometimes when no adult was around the house for days, this was the only food we had. The white woman used to set food out for us to eat, and that was our breakfast. You know, we always thought that's what we had coming, you know. We didn't know if she was a parent, if she was doing this for my mother. or We didn't have no idea about what that stuff was going on. But we, we survived off of it. Jarvis has only one vivid memory of his father, just before his stepfather, Otis, came into the picture. Enlil McRae continues. We were all in the bedroom, where Mama had been trying to pack our stuff in a chaotic frenzy. My father, whose name I never knew, banged open the front door, yelling, Where are you, bitch? I'm gonna kill you and your kids. Panic-stricken, Mama grabbed me, jerked my face up to hers, and shook me, saying, if anything happens to me, you take care of your sisters. Then she crammed the three of us under the bed one by one with me on the outside. Now I heard my father yelling, where are those kids? Sweat dripping from her face. My mother ran out of the bedroom, hearing the bam, bam, bam of my father's fist against her flesh. I knew what happened when she got to the next room. My sisters and I shook with every blow as if our mother's cries were our own. And when cries stopped, we could still hear the blows. But that wasn't all we heard. The furniture was breaking and glass was flying as the pictures fell down from the walls. 
My father had slammed it to us like a hurricane. Then, with a kick of his foot, the bedroom door smashed open, and the storm stood at our threshold. From under the bed, all I could see was these shoes, the scariest sight I've ever seen. I raised my eyes to catch a glimpse of the man who filled the shoes, but his voice interrupted me. Where you motherfucking kids at? I'm gonna kill you too. Thankfully, he never thought to look beneath the bed, but the violence their mother endured is indelible. Hearing our screams, a neighbor came in and called an ambulance from along. After that, I never asked about my father. I've always remembered those shoes trying to stomp out the light of my mother, taking me to pain that has lasted forever. Though only 6.5% of Californians are black, African Americans make up 29% of the prison population and 36% of those condemned to death. The pipeline from the intersection of poverty and race to the execution chambers in California's state prison is difficult to refute. And along the pathway looms largely a highly dysfunctional foster care and juvenile justice system. Jarvis and his siblings were removed from their mother's care after she was beaten within an inch of her life. Though separated from his siblings, Jarvis's first four years in foster care was a brief, albeit profound, example of what's right with the system. Dennis and Mamie Prox were elderly, God-fearing Christians who first took Jarvis into their loving home and under their nurturing wings. Of the Proxes, he writes, Their faith in the power of loving hearts gave me the best years of my childhood, somehow erasing many of the horrors I experienced before I walked into their lives. Mamie and Dennis was my very first foster home, and it was the first foster home. It was the first place in my life that I saw all the contradictions of where I had came from and what I had now. They loved me more than anything in the world. You know, I was the only kid. You know, I had my own little bedroom. I had a whole huge backyard, a real huge backyard. Uh, the red porch, the whole thing, you know. I was the darling in the house, the darling in the whole block, actually. You know, it was when I first really went to school, when I first really got the grades, when I first really played in the sandbox, uh, everything, you know. And the difference between there and where I came from was shocking. It was, it was like... I didn't even want to tell the stories after a while. And they didn't make me tell the stories, neither. They didn't need to know the stories. Uh, Whatever social services had communicated to them, they understood where I had came from. And they were very understanding of that life. They didn't show sadness for it because they didn't want to wear that off on me. But... They understood it. They understood it, and they knew their role in having this opportunity, you know, to care for uh, to care for me. What are some of your favorite and I memories? Was oh man, what are my favorite memories? Mm-hmm. Uh, Christmases and my first bike and my first real day in the first grade and the second grade and. Uh, Mamie, uh, I loved her so much. Um, what was she like? 
she was she was rolled off. She was rolled into a, a whole bunch of things. She was your your mother, your auntie, your grandmother, uh, your disciplinarian. It was all these things, you know. And she would try to be all those things to be one kind of person, and that's what she made herself into for me. Uh, Dennis was the same way, you know. They were older folks. They made life very, very comfortable for me. You know, I didn't have to do a whole lot. The child in me just came rolling back. And I didn't know how much hurt and pain I had suffered um, being abandoned like that. You, you 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 tell a story about them taking you to church. What was that like? Oh wow! Yeah, I, you know, I, I at first let me just say this: I have never, when I first went to church with with Mammy and Dennis, I had never ever had seen so many black folks in my life. So that was the first thing that had just blown me away. You know. Mammy was a very, very liked, loved, appreciative person in the church, and she always got the best seats. Dennis was a deacon, so he always sat way up there. And her friends were, they were the most bizarre women I ever saw in my life, you know? How um, so? Well, they... They would have the, they would go through these Holy Ghost moments, you know, where they would they would where they'd be trying to get the devil out of them, you know, and they'd be spinning on the ground and sweating and kicking and like she's having a seizure or something. And then Mammy would bend down and put a fan on her face, and, and I'm thinking, oh God, I got to get out of here, you know what I mean? They didn't call them. They didn't say, we need some help here. Well, we need some help. We need to get this woman off the ground. No, they just get real close to her and fan her, fan the woman on the face. Like, everything she's doing is okay. And I just knew that wasn't cool, you know. I didn't like it. I hated it. So I gave my I gave my allowances back just so I don't have to go. Um, <laughs> so you gave your allowance back so you didn't have to go to church? Yeah, they they made a deal. They said, if you go to church, we'll give you... I can't remember how... Because they used to say three bits, four bits. So they never said 50 cents. They always call them bits. You know, and I, at first I was collecting the money, you know, the coins and everything. And then one morning I said, you know what? You guys can have this back, you know? <laughs> I'm not going, you know? <laughs> yeah, it was one of the first executive decisions I ever made in my life. This is not happening. Did you stay home and they went to church after you gave the money back? The people across the street babysitted me. I was cutting their lines for twice as much. It was <laughs> That was brilliant. <laughs> yeah, I was <laughs> I was cutting their lines for twice as much. Um yeah. Tell me about how it all came to an end. Well there was the reality that I lived in and there was reality that I learned later. The reality that I lived in was that they were getting old and they were just not able to keep up with me. They just couldn't keep up, you know, and it broke their heart to uh, uh, 
uh, have to let me find me another place. But in reality, Mamie was diagnosed with cancer and she was dying. And that's the story I never got, you know. Um, so the dentist couldn't do it by himself. As soon as I left, maybe a month or two after I left, she died. I, I was crushed. That really spun me in a way where I, I compared everybody to her and no one no one ever got as close to her in my life than she was. Mother's Day is coming, and mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get Mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get Mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way. Knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If the proxy showed what's right within our foster care system, Earl and Florence DuPont showed quite the opposite. This was the next household Jarvis was shipped to, and it was nothing short of a nightmare. 
He was little more than a paycheck to them and a lot less than an innocent nine-year-old boy. This is what happened to him for confiding his grievances to Mamie and Dennis. Florence looked down at my hands and told me to wash before I left the house. I was at the sink laboring when she suddenly came up behind me, gripping one of my hands. She forced it down into the drain. For a split second, I imagined she thought I dropped the soap and was wanting me to retrieve it. Then I saw her flip the garbage disposal switch. Tips of my fingers felt bits of food bouncing off the rotating blades. I tried to pull my hand out as Florence kept pushing it down further toward the blades. We were like two arm wrestlers. I didn't know why Florence was doing this. She was not only mean, she had become totally possessed. I could feel her evilness wanting to hear my screams. The seconds felt like minutes. Thanks to the soap, she kept losing her grip, which may have been what saved my fingers. If you ever, Florence said, spinning into my ear, try calling somebody else about what goes on in this house. You won't have this hand. Don't you ever, ever, she seated through her teeth. Do you hear me? Do you? Yes, please. I won't. I won't. I promise. I won't. What a trip. Tell me about him. I've been thinking about this for many, many years before I even wrote that book. And I realized there are so many people in prison, not just on death row, but in prison, had known someone like that in their younger life. These are the faces and names of people we can I can go out to any yard and we can talk about for you for, for, for hours. We can compare life experiences with these people. We can show our our wounds where we was hit when we were first hit and second hit and third hit, you know, and what that did to us when we ran away from that and we ran away from something just like that and something just like that again and then we found the most safest place is in some juvenile hall with a dormitory that had in a structure that we went to school early in the morning, we came back, and when we got in trouble, we got uh, thrown into a hole. So the DuPonts is very much in that in that way. They stacked you up. You went in there, and there's five or six, maybe more than that, foster kids, and they're in a very small room, and there were three bump beds, no, two bump beds, but three three decks. I was put at the top. I was the smallest. I can raise my arm halfway, and I can touch the ceiling. It was it was junky. It was stinky. It was just completely, utterly different from where I had been, to me, raised with Mammy and Dennis. It was completely, utterly different. I didn't understand it at all. And even though I had a little with my mother and we had that experiences that I can always think about and reflect back on, this was totally different. This was a machine, a, a systematic way of becoming wealthy by the, by the exploitation of kids and a juvenile system that was just bursting out the seams with what do we do with these kids? So, that story is a story that 
you know, has all the violence, everything you need to be horrified, to be that so many people I know in jail and prisons and wherever I've been know this, know the DuPonts. DuPonts is a very, very, it is one of those well-written books that we all can talk about. I was abused. I was whipped. I was thrown. I was dropped out of stairs. I was, my hand was forced into a, a, um, garbage disposal machinery type thing, a rotor, everything, you know, um, I was made to eat food out of garbage uh, as a disciplinary uh, action. And it was the pits. It was the pits. And I watched people for the first time in, in my life at that point endure pain. Earlier, I didn't know what... I knew what being very hungry, starving you know, wanting to eat so bad that there was nothing there to eat. I understood that. That's fine. I dig that. That was cool. I understood it. It was something of an experience that Mammy and Dennis told me that is not what real people do. Only sick people do those things. And your mother and your father and their friends were not well. I dug it. I understood it. Maybe did I want to believe it so I don't have to tell no horror story about my mother, that might be the case. But this was systematic. This was a design way of treating children. It was a way of raising kids that were not your own. Their kids lived upstairs. Their bedrooms were flushed. We weren't allowed to go up there. We had to sleep down there. Um, it was hell. It was real hell. And someone told me how to go to juvenile hall instead. They showed me how to run away just so I can go to juvenile hall instead. So that was the kind of place it was. I don't wish that on anyone. You know, it was not right at all. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get Mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, 
The CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Jarvis eventually found the courage to escape the bondages of the DuPont House of Terror, only to find himself at times homeless or bouncing from one foster facility to the next, in and out of juvenile detention centers from the notorious McLaren Hall Children's Center to the even more notorious Boys Town of the Desert. McLaren Hall, incidentally, was shuttered years ago under dark clouds of rampant abuse and molestation. Boys Town of the Desert was a turning point in my life. It was because of where I went after Boys Town. After Boys Town, where all hell broke loose. Whereas the DuPonts was very abusive on every level. The academy was very structured into a military cadet type school where every act of violence was justified. Every show of cowardness were treated with the most disrespect, and it was a challenge to keep up with that stuff. Uh, we were forced to fight. We were forced to learn how to fight. We were forced to run. We were forced to endure pain. Uh, we were forced to give pain, to initiate pain, to, to, to enjoy it, to make people feel they deserved it. We were programmed to be very, very violent people, young kids. We challenged each other by putting cigarettes between our arms and to see who flinched. Counselors, cadet counselors were bet on that. And I was trained to be very, very violent. That was a turning point in my life. That child that was abandoned in that, in that small house and that kid, that, that, that toddler who was with Mamie and Dennis, that kid that didn't understand why people treated people so bad, and the DuPonts, and the peer pressure at Boys Town. Nothing, none of those compared to the California Military Academy. Nothing. We were made to hurt people and made to endure pain. I was pretty good at it. 
because I kind of looked up to these guys, you know, the counselors, you know, who showed me how to kickbox and showed me how to fight and showed me how to not lose and showed me how to take pain by cigarette butts and who would buy me a six-pack of sodas if I can keep my arm there the longest. It was a very, very, very uh, painful thing. I compared it to training bulldogs at an early age. It was training bulldogs at an early age for me to inflict violence. I've seen guys get buffed in the head with sticks and they better not have cried, you know, and they didn't. If they had a chance to have a pistol, they would shot up everybody in there. And I see that a lot when I think about some of the violence I see today. I was taught violence, and I'll never think I really came back from that in my early age, uh, teenage years. I learned almost everything that I needed to learn to defend myself, and I got pretty good at it. Uh, just something about me just locked up, just locked in. You know, it was something about me that just said, that you're on your own now, you know. When you run away, you know, make sure no one hurts you. When you, any other place you go to, you know, make sure no one hurts you. You're not going to depend on asking people or telling on anyone or, you know, this guy, he hit me in the face. There was none of that no more. There was none of that. And I met all these guys in prison almost, you know. This is what blows me away, even when I think about it today. It was based on your performance in the academy that reflected who you were when you got to prison. If you were weak, dependent upon someone else, scared, taken advantage of in the academy, you was expected to be that same person when you got to prison. And people made you that same person when you got to prison got stabbed because they were that same person. So that would make me strong. That would make me survive because my track record as a kid really reflected everywhere else I've been. Even today, I, I, know, I know that young kids who are in juvenile hall, they're trying to get out of who they were when they were in juvenile hall when they come to prison because that history follows you. Those life experiences as children in foster homes, boys' homes, camps, juvenile halls, follow us wherever we go if we're going in the direction of prisons. Dear Governor Newsom, I want to tell you about a man I've come to know, someone extraordinary. His name is Jarvis J. Masters. He inspires people and helps them Indeed, he's changed lives and saved them. But what's most remarkable is that Jarvis has done this while being incarcerated on death row in San Quentin. He's there because he was framed for a crime he didn't commit. There's incontrovertible evidence to prove this. But in spite of that, he's been on death row for three decades, including 22 years in solitary confinement. Even amid that injustice and in those appalling conditions, he's been a force for good. Uh, my name is... David Sheff, I'm a journalist who's written about social justice, politics, mental health, and many other issues, most recently focusing on our nation's drug use and addiction crises. Uh, in addition, 
I'm in the final stages of a book I've been working on for three years, a biography of masters entitled The Buddhist on Death Row. When I met David Sheff, he convinced me with very few words that, that I had a story. It's an extraordinary story, and one I hope and believe will enlighten and inspire. He did not just come here one day and just start taping me, and that was it. He came here consistently, going over things, going back over things, finding out things, wondering about this. I mean, he is a real biographer. I, I suspect that he has at least 50 tapes, you know, 200, 300, maybe 400 hours of tapes. In the book, I chronicle Jarvis's journey. He had a difficult childhood characterized by neglect and physical abuse. And as he fully admits, he committed crimes when he was a teenager. Jarvis has never killed. I'll say that again. He has never killed, but he's open about the crimes he did commit, and he's repeatedly described his remorse. When Jarvis was incarcerated in San Quentin, it was different than it is now. A former warden described it to me as a war zone. Jarvis was thrown into that war zone when he was still an adolescent. He was only 19. Four years later, a terrible crime was committed. A correctional officer was murdered. Jarvis wasn't involved with the murder, but he was framed. He couldn't defend himself. He would have been murdered himself if he had. As a result, Jarvis was condemned and sentenced to death. Tragically, we've all heard similar stories about wrongful convictions, innocent men being locked up in our nation's prisons. Far too many languish there for the remainder of their lives, and many in that situation grow angry and bitter, and many have killed themselves. Jarvis went another way. As I said, he has changed lives and saved them. Jarvis has taught so-called troubled teenagers nonviolence and challenged them to rethink their definitions of manhood. He's taught them that being a man isn't what they'd been taught, someone cold, hard, stoic, and violent, but instead is someone conscientious, open, and loving, a good father and friend, a citizen who contributes to his or her community. A condemned prisoner told me about Jarvis's breaking inviolable prison codes intervening in conflicts on the yard that would have led to violence and helping inmates who were vulnerable to attack. Even more improbable, in my research I found examples of Jarvis's preventing murder of prisoners and, in two cases I've documented, preventing the murder of correctional officers. I am now writing you to look, to ask you to look into Jarvis's case and write a terrible wrong that has been done to him. He has talked to me about one of the things he would do, he's freed from San Quentin, he would return to the kinds of neighborhoods in which he grew up to teach California's lost children. He'd guide and mentor kids and teach them to value themselves and live authentically with the aim of helping them avoid gangs, drugs, and violence. I want to thank you for listening, and I want to send my respect. David Sheff. I'm blessed by you know this opportunity to have someone like him sit down for all these hours and spend this time with me and to write about my life. The system taught Jarvis how to fight, and while still a boy, defined for him what it meant to be a man, fierce, angry, and proud. There were times when he tried to rise above and escape the cradle-to-prison pipeline, but the gravitational pull was too strong to resist. Next week, we'll hear directly from Jarvis about the crimes he committed that first put him behind bars in 1981. We'll hear what manhood meant to him then and what manhood means to him now and how that transformation came to be. Today's episode was written and produced by Donna Fazari and myself, Corny Cole. Our theme song, Sentenced, is compliments of the band Stick Figure from their album Set in Stone. 
Excerpts from Jarvis's memoir, That Bird Has My Wings, a Harper One publication, were read by Enlil McRae, a member of the Truth Worker Theater Company. To learn more about the outstanding work they do, please visit truthworker.com. Stu Sternbach has composed the original music. Nate Dufort did the sound design. Visit freejarvis.org to find out more about Jarvis's case and to sign your name to our Dear Governor Newsom petition. And if you have questions for Jarvis, please leave a message on our hotline at 201-903-3575. That's 201-903-3575. And you can also pre-order David Sheff's biography about Jarvis, The Buddhist on Death Row, How One Man Found Light in the Darkest Place. Dear Governor Newsom is a production of iHeartMedia and Three Mutts Media. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, The CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.